Father, we do pray for Kay right now as she is in the hospital. Pray that you give the doctors wisdom in figuring out how to treat her well. Uh, we pray for just uh, both her and Ned, sustain them, encourage them, uh, give them um, stamina, give us wisdom as a body, how to come alongside them and encourage them and give them what they need. Uh, Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for their service. We thank you for them. Just help Kay, especially if she's not going to be able to make it to the gathering today. Encourage her soul in you. Encourage her with truth um, from your word. And um, Lord, we just ask as we come uh, this morning to think again about your attributes. Um, and Lord, to think about uh, your uh, heavier attributes about who you are. And as we think about you, help us to think about you rightly. Help us to not create you in uh, according to our own conception but rather the exact opposite and reverse that you would shape our conceptions of you from your word and that we would worship you rightly so we just pray for help for that this morning and um, just pray that we even now preparing our hearts for the gathering of your people coming soon we ask these things in your name amen so uh last week we we started talking um you know we spent many weeks on the trinity and rightfully so but then uh, we've, last week we started uh, delving into more, uh, maybe what you would think of as the, the traditional attributes of God, or um, just uh, let's look, look, at, look at this attribute, let's move on to this attribute. So that's kind of what we've been doing. So last week we uh, talked about God's love and what that means in relation to the Trinity. Uh, this week we're going to talk about God's wrath and jealousy. Um, so I think it's helpful um, to... If you're going to kind of take one of God's attributes at one end of the spectrum, at least the way we think about it, it's then helpful to see, well, but the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, is true of him as well, uh, and how do we think about that? So juxtaposing uh, God's love last week with God's wrath. And uh, Bruce, Bruce Baxter last week brought this, this up, right, this idea of there is actually a connection between God's love and God's wrath. Uh, they're not disconnected. They're not like opposites. They're actually, one is a manifestation of the other. And to actually get us started on that, uh, let's go ahead and turn to Romans 12, 9. Romans 12, 9. Um, and Paul here is, he's, he's made this big transition in 12, 1 from really laying out the gospel um, in, in Romans 1 through 11 and now he's exhorting uh, the Roman Christians uh, in their, their walks. Um, and as part of that, we get Romans 12, 9. Um, so someone go ahead and read Romans 12, 9. Okay, so let love be genuine. That's ESV. So let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Uh, someone with a different translation, read that. Okay, so let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Uh, yeah, so really the idea here for genuine, it's this word for sincerity, or literally it's the word for play acting or hypocrisy with a negator on, on the front of it. So unhypocritical, um, uh, or you could say that positively, sincere or genuine, right? So you're without play acting, let your love be without play acting, let it be sincere, uh, let it be 
Genuine is how ESV renders that, but sincerity. Let love be sincerity, which is kind of interesting. What does that mean? Let love be sincere. What does that imply about love? It can be faked, right? You can have a sort of love that is a fake love, right? That is a non-genuine love, that is an insincere sort of love. Now, what's interesting is in most English translations, the, the next couple phrases, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, they're rendered as independent clauses, further commands. But actually, in the original, there are a couple participles that really further define what love being genuine looks like. So it's actually, you could render it like this. Love must be sincere, abhorring what is evil, clinging to the good. So really, those, those two ideas, the abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good, they're actually further explaining what sincere love looks like. And so what Paul is saying, he's exhorting believers to this, uh, uh, okay, you want a sincere love, what does that look like? Well, a sincere love actually abhors, hates. Uh, it's a very, very strong word for hate here. It's like disgust uh, at something, right? So if you want a sincere love, well, that's going to imply abhorring, uh, hating, uh, despising what is evil. And it's also going to mean clinging to what's good. That's what sincere love looks like. Now, let's extrapolate from that. Um, Paul is exhorting believers to this, but this must also be true of God. Because if he's exhorting uh, believers, hey, be this way, well, believers, as we know from Romans 8, believers are being conformed to the image of Christ, who himself is the perfect image of God. So if we want to talk about God's love, well, God's love is obviously a sincere love. It has to be, which implies what, according to Romans 12, 9? He abhors evil, and he clings to what is good, right? And so as you think about each of those things, really, that's the starting point of how we can think about God's wrath and his jealousy. Really, that's a nice way to kind of frame that um, God's wrath is uh, his sincere love and abhorring evil. That's what his wrath is, is his sincere love, a true love, a genuine love, abhorring evil. So his wrath is his manifestation of his love um, in action in a particular way, okay? Also, with the clinging to what is good, you could really tie that in with jealousy. Uh, we'll see, when we talk about jealousy, um, there's a good jealousy and there's a bad jealousy. God obviously has the good jealousy, uh, but jealousy is, is a sort of guarding and protecting what is good. Uh, and so what, that's what you even see here, right? Uh, if you want to talk about a sincere love, well, it's going to abhor evil and it's going to cling to the good, so if you tie God's abhorring of evil with his wrath, his clinging to what is good, you can tie with his jealousy. And we'll walk through several verses to kind of show each of those things, but that's kind of the starting point. Um, any questions as we, um, this is kind of the first taste as we walk through uh, more verses explaining God's wrath and God's jealousy. But I want to start at the outset saying it's connected with God's love. It's connected with God's sincere love. Uh, and, how, and really his jealousy and his wrath are manifestations of that sincere love in God. Any questions on that? Is that how does that shift your thinking about God's, God's love and God's wrath already? Yeah. Yeah, it's not just some like, uh, it's not separate. None of God's attributes are separate from one another, right? They inform one another. They, they interact with each other. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the way Paul frames it here, it's kind of, he writes straight 
Mm, yeah. Okay, so then let's, let's focus on each of these aspects. So let's focus on God's wrath. So we, can, we have that starting point of God's wrath is abhorring what is evil, but let's, let's see what the scriptures themselves say. Now, if you're going to abhor what's evil, you have to, at this, you have to know what good is, right? Uh, or you have to start there. Uh, and so really, we actually start with God's goodness um, and the, the reality that God is perfectly good in himself and is himself the standard of goodness, right? So there's no like goodness ideal outside of God that God conforms to. It's that God is good and is himself the standard of that goodness. But we can see this in a number of passages, God's complete goodness. Um, so let's, let's do 1 John, um, 1 John 1, 1 John 1, 5 and 6. Uh, someone go ahead and read that. Yeah, so what do you see there? What do you see about God? What is it? He's light, which in this context, what is John meaning by using that metaphor? He's good, and in a sense that he's purely good. Like, it's not just, well, there's some, you know, light, and there's some dark in God. No, he's Pure light, right? Um, pure good, pure moral goodness, uh, and so because of that, there is absolutely no, absolutely not any evil in God whatsoever. Not a desire for evil, not any action of evil. And a couple good Old Testament passages uh, remind us of this: Habakkuk. We'll find Habakkuk one thirteen. So in context, Habakkuk's talking with God, and he's like saying, hey, you're, you're sending the Babylonians to, or, or actually, I think at that point, he's talking about Israel, and he's saying, hey, uh, why is all this evil going on in Israel? Because, what does, he say about, what does he say about God? What does Habakkuk say about God's relationship to evil? He can't even look at it, right? Which makes sense, right? If God is purely good, uh, he's pure light, no darkness at all, Right? He can't even look at evil. Right, It's so bad. Uh, which brings up a conundrum in the context of Habakkuk, but we'll leave that um, for another time. Um, but it, it, he does affirm God is, is too pure of eyes to see evil. Uh, Psalm, 5, Psalm 5 actually states it uh, in, in some ways more emphatically. Just all of these passages tied together give us this picture. 
Uh, someone go to Psalm 5, um, verse 4. Yeah, so it's not possible for evil to dwell with God, right? So God is pure light. He's pure good. There's no darkness. There's no desire for evil. He can't look at evil. Evil can't dwell with him, uh, which is the basis for understanding God's wrath, because if God's wrath is his abhorring of evil, it is, um, evil is antithetical to who God is, right? It is absolutely, he, it can't interact with him, right? Which brings up the whole, uh, his, his emotion towards evil, Okay, uh, does this make sense so far? Right, so we're talking about a sincere love will abhor evil. God is absolutely good; can't look at evil, can't dwell with evil, uh, absolutely cannot. Which is the basis for understanding God's goodness uh, and God's love is the basis for understanding His wrath. Okay, because His wrath is the emotion to the opposite of those things. Any questions so far? Right, And the kind of love that person is thinking about is what kind of love, according to Romans 12, 9. When they say, well, God is love, he couldn't possibly punish evil, what kind of love are they, uh, according in the, the language of Romans 12, 9, what kind of love is that? It's insincere love. It's an ungenuine love, right? It's a sort of sentimentality, but it's not genuine love. Uh, and so, and, and there's other ways you can demonstrate that to them pretty quickly, too, like, Okay, let's talk about the kind of love that you're talking about, and let's see that it's actually not the kind of love you want. <laughs> uh, it's a sentimental sort of love. Emily. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and if you even press people and think, well, wait a minute, um, do, do, you, do you want uh, someone who winks at evil? Do you want someone who is actually, is okay with evil? Is that the kind of God that you want? I don't think you want that kind. I mean, what, what you want in, in relation to God is irrelevant. Um, but, like, even in a, in a just a, a sense of, well, what kind of love are you thinking about there? Because I don't think it's the kind of love that you actually think is good. Um, and you can kind of press that and show their inconsistency in talking about that. But in any case, um, oh yeah, Bruce, sorry. And that's why we started in Romans 12, 9, is because actually what we do see is that it's, it's not even about a scale between hate and love. It's that hatred of evil is a manifestation of a sincere love. Because Romans 12, 9, again, love must be sincere. But what does that look like? Well, love being sincere means you, you're abhorring what is evil and you're clinging to what is good. Right? So if you have a sentimentality sort of love, where it's like, oh, God's love, he can't possibly punish evil, it's like, no, 
actually a genuine love does hate evil. And that's, uh, even at an, our fallen state, we, sometimes we can grasp that. Okay? Now, let's actually see, uh, we've talked about God's goodness um, as, uh, uh, you know, obviously evil and goodness are the opposite of one another. We've seen God's pure goodness. He can't look at evil. Evil can't dwell with God, which this all brings up, um, okay, what does God's wrath look like? So we are already in Psalm 5. Someone, um, so, so someone reread verse 4, but then read verse 5. Okay, so here is a manifestation of God's anger, God's wrath. How is it directed? And hate towards what? Evildoers, right? So sometimes we think, you know, there's the cliche, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. That's just not, it's a half truth. Um, there's a reality that, that that phrase is trying to say, but actually scripture says, no, God hates evildoers. He hates the evil that they do, but you can't abstract evil from the doer of the evil, right? Um, and so what you see here is uh, when someone is doing evil, God can't look at evil. He can't bear evil. Evil can't dwell with him. And so on the basis of verse 4 in Psalm 5, right, uh, uh, the next verse is, okay, the proud, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers because... Um, Evil, an evildoer, right, is doing those things that are antithetical to God's character, his goodness. Um, and so he, his emotion of anger is aroused, and hatred and wrath is aroused because of that. Okay? Let's see some more. Nahum. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> book. It's, uh, so Nahum is said about 100 years after Jonah, and Nahum's, uh, you know, Jonah, Nineveh repented in Jonah's day. Nahum is Jonah's wish, because uh, now God's um, bringing his full wrath to bear on Nineveh 100 years later or so. Uh, Nahum 1, 2, and 3. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so what do you see here? Yep. Well, what other phrases are kind of put in parallelism with his wrath? Vengeance. Jealousy, which is the other one we haven't really focused on yet, but we've already mentioned it. God's jealousy. Okay. Uh, you do see he's slow to anger, but he's great in power, right? So you see that, and there's this imagery of whirlwind and storm. So you get the idea of a, you know, God's wrath breaking forth is a furious um, store, right? That's kind of part of the imagery here. Yeah, Bruce. Uh, what verse? Yeah, well, by no means clear the guilty. 
Yeah. So there's that good, good evil aspect again, right? So God is pure light, can't look at evil, can't dwell with evil. Um, so he's not going to clear the guilty, right? Uh, he would be unjust. So we, that's another attribute of God, right? We kind of see it all tied in with these, right? Um, God, God is not unjust. He is very just, and so he can't clear the guilty, right? But he is angry towards them. He hates evildoers. He is wrathful towards those who commit iniquity because they're doing things that he can't even look on. He can't even dwell in. They're exactly opposite his character, okay? Uh, any other comments from Nahum 1, 2, and 3? Again, it's just showing this is how God describes himself. Uh, and how he, uh, you know, how he describes his character in relation to, in this case, Nineveh's evil. Yes, very good. And that's the thing. We, 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 when we think about God, we don't want to like, there's a way you can focus on one of the attributes that overbalances um, or skews like his other attributes. Uh, and so that's why we're kind of juxtaposing this. Like God's love, uh, God's wrath is God's love, a sincere love in action against evil. But God still has um, a love and a goodness that's going to rescue as well. And that's part of the huge tension of scripture is like, wait a minute, how can both of those realities be true? How can God rescue people and dwell with them when he says he can't dwell with evildoers? Like, how does that work? And you see that even in verse 7, right? That, that uh, God's goodness, he is wrathful against evil. And at the same time, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble from his own wrath, right? And so that develops a tension in scripture uh, that we understand is resolved at the cross and only at the cross. Um, right? Where God can be the just and the justifier, okay? But nonetheless, we are focusing on that aspect of uh, God's hatred, uh, God's wrath, God's fury at evil. Okay, let's go to Romans 1.18. It's both Old Testament and New Testament. So anyone tries to say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and God of the New Testament is a God of love, that's just someone who doesn't know their Bible. So, uh, because it's the same God throughout That's actually an old, old heresy. That was Marcion uh, in like, what is Marcion? Uh, like 150s um, AD, I believe. Anyway, um, Romans 1.18. So uh, Paul's talking about the gospel and the righteousness of God being revealed, but to kind of start things off on his whole treatise, um, Romans 1.18 and read through, oh, verse 23. since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. 
their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so it's a longer chunk, but um, and there's a reason I wanted to read most of that, but... We're focusing on God's wrath, which is where we start in verse 118. Okay, so we got the wrath of God again. What's it directed towards? Suppression. Yeah, suppression of what? The suppression of truth, uh, ungodliness, which ungodliness is this idea of, like, impiety. So it's not like you have ungodly character. It's more like you're not, um, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have a reverence for God. Um, you, don't, you don't approach him with piety, right? Like, you don't care. Um, so there's unrighteousness, for sure, and unrighteousness in action, but there's also just kind of the attitude of impiety. Lack of... Un, yep. Lack of gratitude. Yep. Uh, and what do you notice? So he goes, Paul goes on, they know what's true about God, but they suppress it. And this is true of everyone, right? Everyone in their natural state, this is descriptive of it. Um, but how does... Um, how does he, what is God angry at? Yes, he's angry at unrighteousness. Yes, he's angry at impiety. Yes, he's uh, angry at um, uh, he's angry at all uh, ungratefulness. But like, why is why is God angry at all this? Yeah, and turn away not just from the truth, but who. There's the ex- yeah, he made himself clear. Yes, yes. He, he made himself plain to them. Yes. Right, so it's the person, this is personal, right? This is not impersonal. Uh, yeah, Bruce. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's the exchange, right? The exchange is what God is ticked off at, right? Um, he is angry. Now, I, I want to just pause right there and make sure we understand. God doesn't is not uncontrolled angry, right? God is never uncontrolled. Um, but it is a right and good controlled wrath and fury that we are talking about here. But what you need to see is it's personal, right? Uh, it's an exchange, uh, it's not as if, some, sometimes we can kind of slip into thinking like, okay, you broke the law, and God's angry that you broke the law. But it's, more, it's different than that. It is partly true, but it's different from that. It's because really you're slapping the king who made the law. When you break the law, you're slapping the king who made the law in the face. Okay? So it's a personal offense. It's an exchange. Uh, and and um, God is the ultimately good that he is he is pure light there is no darkness in him he is he is the excellent one he is the beautiful one he is the glorious one he is deserving of all worship and you're trading what is of supreme value for what is the exact opposite um you're trading uh uh you're 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 trading a, a delicious banquet and meal and enjoying god for mud pies right uh that's what you're doing and so it is it is a horrendous act um, and God's wrath is revealed against it. So, yeah. They become fools because they are willing to give 
right. Right. And all of us are in this state. <laughs> We've all done this <laughs> or struggle with doing this, right? We all, that's what sin is. It's an exchange of something that God hates, uh, that God doesn't love, that we're exchanging really God himself for something that uh, is not God, right? That's the essence of sin. Uh, and God hates it. And he hates us as, you, you know, in our natural state um, for doing it, right? God's, uh, John 3, uh, 36, um, God's wrath remains on those who do not uh, repent and trust themselves to Christ, right? So we were all under the Father's wrath. So Chris, when do you think the church started proclaiming that God loves everybody? Well, is that true? Well, let's think back to last, think back to last week. Is it true that God loves everyone? Yes. yes, he does. He loves everyone in a sense, right? He loves everyone with common grace. Um, remember Matthew 5, or uh, at the end there, right? Um, he loves the evil, or he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And that's in the context of Jesus saying, love your enemies. And effectively what Jesus is saying, love your enemies because God does, Right? So it's true that God loves everyone, but what most people mean, and I think this is what you're getting at, Brenda, like... I wasn't here last week, so Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I forgot about that. Um, so, like, um, but not all love is the same, right? That kind of love is different than his electing, uh, electing, choosing, right. like, set my affections on you, I'm going to marry you kind of love, right? Yeah. No, 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 it's good because it's, what you're getting at is more the idea that God loves everyone equally. And so because he loves everyone equally, right, right. And it's that insincere love. Like you actually don't know what love means and what love in relation to God means. So, yeah, Susan. Sure. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He can. Yeah. So the, the, you can. It's it's evident because God loves His enemies. God hates His enemies, and God loves His enemies at the same time. Because otherwise, if He doesn't, like uh, we're toast, right? Um, so yeah, that's the reality. And you, I mean, those of us who. Like, even think of the relational aspect, whether it's with a child or with a friend or with a spouse. And, like, uh, you can be really angry, you know, and obviously our, our anger is not always pure, and oftentimes it's not. But there's this reality where you can be rightfully angry at, like, a child and yet completely love them all at the same time, right? It's, uh, it, it, and how much more so it's true of God. And we know that that's true because of revelation, right? It's not just that we're arguing from our, what we do to what God does. We're saying, no, we can see that God both loves his enemies, Matthew 5 and elsewhere, right? And he enjoins us to love our enemies, but he's at the same time angry with his enemies. But we know that the basis of his love, even his electing love, so those whom... Uh, whom God has set his eternal love on before the foundation of the world, there's a time where he's just absolutely wrathful towards them. Even though he knows he's going to redeem them through Christ. There's a real change when one repents and believes in Jesus, right? 
And um, so you have to understand that both are true at the same time. Because if we go back to where we started, love must be sincere, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. So if I truly love someone, I'm going to abhor what's evil in them. I, uh, I have relatives that are transgender. I love them. I really do. But I abhor the, the evil that they're doing. And our society has no categories for that. Because love has become, well, you just support whatever I say is good. Instead of what is actually good, according to what God says. Yeah. Uh, Ned. I'm thinking of the phrase that we have quite often, I have tough love for you. Yes. That basically, I mean, as we've gone through this so far, I'm thinking that's the same love that God has. Yes. Tough love for you. Sorry, son. Yeah. you got to pay for it. Right. Now we we have to understand that like when so there's a difference between like pre-salvation. We're thinking about believers, right, or the, God's elect, God's chosen people. Uh, before those elect repent, there is God's wrath towards them, condemnation, um, anger, hatred, um, and yet He has set His love on them before eternity passed. When that believer repents, there is no condemnation. Uh, is there a sort of uh, anger that can arise when believers sin? Yes, a disciplining sort of anger. And that's what Ned's talking about, a sort of um, the Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives, right? Uh, but not the foundation. The foundation of the relationship is never threatened. Um, but there is a real, there's a, the intimacy can be threatened, the fellowship can be threatened um, because of um, uh, our sin and uh, what we do. It creates a relational separation. Not an ultimate, not in a sense of being losing your faith or anything like that, uh, but in the sense of like there's, there's a distance because, you've, um, because of the sin we've done. Because God hates it. He's grieved over it. He abhors what's evil. So, Okay, uh, go to Psalm. As we're thinking about God's wrath, um, so we've seen... What I want you to catch from Romans 1, 18, is it's personal. God's wrath is personal. Uh, meaning, like, when, when someone commits evil, like, it's a slap in God's face. It's an exchange, okay? And so it's personal. Um, go to Psalm 90. Now, you might not think of Psalm 90 as, like, a place to go to talk about God's wrath. This is probably a familiar psalm. Um, I'll go ahead and read it this time. But actually, Moses brings up one of the premier displays of God's wrath. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and, let your, glor- and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of our, the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. According to Psalm 90, what is the display, a premier display of God's wrath? Sending us back to the dust. Sending us back to the dust. Which, you know, in a sense we kind of know, right? We kind of know that death is the penalty for sin. Um, and we all experience, uh, except with a couple exceptions, right, uh, in history, uh, we all experience that wrath. But when you sit and think about, like, Every single person, with the exceptions, you know, that we know about, um, uh, every single person has been returned to the dust. Like, every graveyard is a testimony to God's wrath. And it's just monotonous, ongoing, constant display of God's wrath. That's what Moses is talking about. And you think about the, it's like a silent power that's just, continuous, right? Um, we don't think about it, and we don't like to think about death, right? But, because of this, but when you stop and think about it, it's like, it's a continuous display of just the crushing wrath of God uh, for the penalty of sin in a fallen world. Uh, and it's like, a, it's like a silent display, in some sense, of God's wrath, although it's not really silent, but it's just one we don't normally think about. So, yeah, Tony. I think it's interesting to me, um, starting in verse 7, I would say that this is probably the opposite or the antithesis to Romans 8, 1, 18, hmm. where they thought they would get wise in the wisdom but became fools. Uh-huh. What Moses, I believe, is saying here is to engender humility mm-hmm. to then get wisdom. Right, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. What's interesting to think about, like, if you think about all of, like, sometimes we get kind of glimpses of the horrors of a fallen world. Uh, Like, we see that in wars. Like, if you've read histories about, like, just things that have happened. uh, Like, I've read just recently a fair amount of history in relation to World War II. And, like, the firebombing of Dresden by the U.S. and what happened there. uh, Horrific. Of course, the, the, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you, like, you think about, like, just the description of, like, people talking about the drop of, like, the atomic bombs and how intense it was. 
like even the tests. And what we have now is like way, 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 way beyond what those initial things were. And you think about, oh, that's just, that's just like scary destructive, right? And it's like happening in an instant. But then if you think about that, that that's like just minuscule in relation to the power of God's wrath. And you think about how that power, but in this case, like you think about, okay, we've got these death tolls for, uh, you know, these horrific human events. But then you think of the death toll of God's wrath. It's constant. It's ongoing. It's 100% uh, fatality because God is angry at evil. Because God is hate, hates evildoers. Uh, that's why this is happening, and that's what Moses is saying. And you think about that, it doesn't come off with a flash, like an atomic bomb, but it's constant, it's ongoing, it's monotonous uh, because of who we are as sinners against a holy God, right? Um, because of he's a loving God. Uh, he loves what is good, and he abhors what's evil. He has a sincere love, and in the face of his sincere love, we are vaporized. Um, because we're unlovely. We're, uh, we're ugly people. We are ugly rebels against the holy God. So. But it makes his um, way for us even more amazing. Exactly. Just to, to go to the lengths that he did in such a perfect yes. way under his way is just amazing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So when you understand that this is why we need to proclaim the wrath of God in the gospel is because if you don't know... Now, it's not only... God doesn't want just people that are like, I'm a flea from your wrath, and I, I want my fire insurance, and I'm good to go, because I don't want a wrath. God wants us to want him, right? He wants us to love him. Um, and that is what we are designed for. But uh, if you don't present the wrath of God, right, you're not going to understand the depth of... Uh, a salvation and the goodness of it. You're not going to understand like why, why do we take communion? Why do we take it with sober joy? Right? We are joyful, but it's a sober joy because of what uh, that represents what Christ had to do to purchase a people for himself. Um, and to purchase a people, right? An exclusive love for people. Uh, one more. Um, so we'll do jealousy next week, but let's do Revelation uh, 14... So we've kind of seen the ongoing, like uh, in Romans 1, the ongoing display of the wrath of God is man's depravity. So giving man over to their own desires is a display of God's wrath. In Psalm 90, uh, the display of wrath in an ongoing way is death. Um, in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it's a snapshot of eternal wrath. Um, so what does that look like? Revelation 14, 9 and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, this, it's actually the Antichrist, the, the person we were talking about um, last week from, from Daniel and all that, the leader, the boastful leader. Um, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the, he also, so this isn't just for the worshipers of the beast, this is also for the worshipers of the beast, it means other people are having this as well. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
That is a snapshot of God's eternal wrath, where for all eternity, those who are consigned to eternal torment are, it's ongoing torment, torment without rest, without hope of reprieve, um, forever and ever, in the presence of God and of the Lamb. Jesus is going to be there, the Father is going to be there, uh, executing his sincere love, which abhors evil. Um, and that's, that's what, that's what hell looks like. Um, it is a, hell is a manifestation of God's love. Now, let me be clear, not for the people in hell. God only has hatred for them. The love that is displayed is the love for, well, one, the people he's rescued, but the love for himself, the love between the father and the son, um, the love uh, uh, relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. Uh, true and genuine love uh, clings to what's good and abhors what's evil. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God is somehow loving those people in the act of tormenting them in hell. Uh, it's not love for them, that individual, but it is a display of love in the broader sense for who God himself is, um, the character of the Trinity, uh, the character of goodness, of righteousness, um, but uh, that is uh, that is the eternal picture of God's um, God's wrath. Yeah. So in doing that, God is in His love ridding wickedness and evil for good. Yes. I mean, for for eternity. Yes. So that we don't we get to step into eternity. Yes. In purity. Yes. And we're saying in yes. Purity. Yes. Yes. And w wickedness, evildoers. It's all, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. And and that 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 would be our faith, um, apart from God's sovereign electing, free in the sense that God has the freedom to do it. Like nothing compelled Him to do that, other than His own goodness and grace, and sweeping us up into the inner trinitarian love and rescuing us from that state. Mm. Here is a call for the endurance of yep. forever in hell. Mm -hmm. There is another forever. Mm -hmm. uh, call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, mm -hmm. write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Mm -hmm. And it's the call, right? It's exactly what we've been talking about in Matthew 24, like perseverance, right? Uh, that the person, this is the danger of the kind of gospel, sort of gospel that's been preached um, the last, well, it's always been probably preached at one manifestation or another, but we see it prevalent in, in the last hundred years or so of the church, right? Like, you know, say the prayer, walk the aisle, raise a hand. Now, God does save people through that. But the sort of faith that he saves people to is a persevering faith, right? So the sort of person that, you know, just says, well, I, I signed the card, I raised my hand, I walked an aisle, I did whatever, and I can live however I want, they're going to be un very unpleasantly surprised um, at the day of judgment because you didn't endure. You didn't, 
you didn't change, and so you weren't real. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the people who are genuinely saved, the, the spirit is regenerated, they're born again, they're, they have a persevering faith. And we, but it's a, it's a real perseverance. Like, we need to persevere. <laughs> we need to, to, to labor, to persevere, trusting in Christ, clinging to Christ, uh, because that's the only way we're saved from the Father's wrath. So, All right, let's stop there. So we'll talk about God's jealousy um, a little bit next week uh, and how that's related to all of this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you, you're not safe. You are pure goodness, pure righteousness, pure love. And we are, we confess, we know, um, even though you have redeemed us in Christ, we still manifest evil and, and, and sin, and we grieve you. Oh, Father, please forgive us. We thank you that we are forgiven through Christ. We thank you that you have rescued us from your wrath. Oh God, give us a love for one another to, to spur one another on to love and good deeds that we might persevere in the faith to the end. And Lord, also that we might proclaim the faith to our friends and our neighbors who are under your wrath and will endure your fury less unless they repent. Oh Father, if they're are any who come to our service this morning and who are just hardened and calcified or, or just unbelievers, um, Lord, whatever their state, and they don't know you, Lord, would you please have mercy, even as you've had mercy on us, and, and pierce their hearts with the gospel, pierce their hearts with your word, and draw them to yourself. We don't want to see any experience this fate. Father, help us to be mindful of who you are and how much you hate evil as a manifestation of your goodness. Lord, help that turn our hearts away from sin and away from those temptations that would draw our hearts to loving the world rather than loving you. Help us to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Um, prepare us for the gathering. Prepare our hearts for communion. May we, in light of your wrath, May the communion be sweeter today. And because we see the perfect, righteous Son who has endured and borne the wrath of God for the sins of his people and been the righteous Savior in their place. Prepare us, O Lord, we would ask. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.